This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians 5, verse 2 to 26. I'll be reading from NIV version. Mark my word, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no values to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who let himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who called you. A little ease works through the whole batch of those. I am convinced in the Lord that you will not take other views. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brother and sister, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brother and sister, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desire what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, peace of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passion and desire. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become considered provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'll pass the time to Pastor Andrew. Thank you. Thanks, Seng Hong, and a very good afternoon to everyone. Good morning. It's um, always a great joy and privilege to be with God's people and um, all the more in this kind of COVID situation to actually have chance to meet with each other. Now, this morning we'll be looking at Galatians 5. The verses will not be on screen, so if you have your Bible, it's a good time to 
keep it open to Galatians 5 as we will refer to it um, repeatedly. So um, if you have your Bible, you'd be great to um, take it out. Now let's begin by asking God to help us as we dig into his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that we can call you Abba, Father. We're reminded truly that it is in Christ that we can call you our Father, that you have already loved us and already saved us. You know where we have been in the whole week. Some of us just arrived from youth. Some of us have been through a difficult week and busy week, and now we are settling into opening up your Bible, your Word. Pray God that your Holy Spirit work in us and through us today so that we may hear your word and we may understand your truth and we can respond rightly to you. Help us to stand firm and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Secret ingredients. That's always the solution to almost everything, isn't it? Imagine you didn't do well for exam or for some, your job interviews, or you failed to get your first date. Your friend comes along with a book titled, Secrets to Success, 10 Tips for the Failures. Would you read it? Or Black Friday special, promising success to maybe the young people don't need, to the older ones, to health and waste. Would you pick up this secret recipe that they offer. Now, I guess if you're like me, I'll be very tempted to try the next secret ingredient to improve whatever areas in my life that I've not hit the mark. Now, I want to invite you now to um, imagine with me that we're in the province of Galatia 2,000 years ago. Just use the imagination a little bit. 2,000 years ago in Galatia, we've heard the good news of God. We recognize we cannot save ourselves from our sins. Only the death of Jesus can we be forgiven and be saved and be made right with God. So we are so convicted by the gospel that we confess our sins, we put our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and we became Christians. We said to ourselves, we're going to live a life that really pleases God. We want to follow Jesus. But guess what? The second day you wake up, after you have professed to be a Christian, you realize life is still tough. School is still tough. Work is still hard. There are occasions that we are still tempted to gossip or lie just to fit in in school or fit in at work. You know, the old self, the doubt will prop up whenever stress arrives. We try hard, but there are times we still fail, even as we become Christians. Not to mention the occasions where we raise our voice, whether our husbands, boyfriend, girlfriend, perhaps our parents. And in our minds, we felt this accusation inside. They say, you hypocrite. What makes you a Christian? I wonder if you have that experience. Now, of course, there are good days. Good days where we are growing that our relationships are better, various relationships to people. We think about God's love for us. They're great days, but most of the time we think of the bad days or the bad times when we fail 
and accusation that comes to us, and we wish that we were better after we become Christians. Now, one day, you're still in Galatia, you heard some distinguished gurus from the religious uh, center of Jerusalem arriving to your Galatia church, home church, and apparently they have some secret ingredients for you to deal with the struggles of Christian life, and you can't wait to go there. So you arrive in your weekend best, hoping to get some advice. After this long, elaborate introduction, the gurus came up, and this is what they teach. They look at the church, perhaps something like this, and they said, I hear you have believed in Jesus and have become Christians. Well, that's good, but not good enough. Apparently, I also hear you do not follow the law of Moses, you are uncircumcised. Is that what Paul teaches you when he came to preach? How do you weak people expect to live a victorious Christian life if you do not have the laws and you remain uncircumcised like the pagans? So as you listen to these spiritual gurus, in some sense, they were quite spot on with your struggle. But the question comes, is the law and circumcision the solution my struggles as Christians. Now, welcome to the letter of Galatians. I hope you're still with me. Well, judging by the number of so-called Christian books and spiritual gurus in our generation who claim to offer secret ingredients to better life and better wealth and for fixing our Christian struggles, we're actually not too far from the Galatian Christians. Now, we do not know exactly what was happening in Galatia and what was being taught, but we know that they were swamped with this temptation and this tension to adopt the Jewish laws and circumcisions. They want to adopt them even after they believe in Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 with me. I hope your Bible is there with you. Galatians 5, verse 1, this is what Paul says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, the Galatian Christians, they have been saved and set free by God from sin and death. But they are tempted to voluntarily wear the yoke of slavery again. Now, the question is, why? And it seems from verse 4, that they actually don't feel that they are good enough Christians. They're trying to be made just by keeping the law. Now, because the Christian life is hard, whether you're a student or whether you're an adult, they all have this urge to make themselves more right by doing something, and they decide that it is keeping the law. They want to be circumcised, to be more right with God, and perhaps God will hear their prayer better. Now, this morning, as we flip to Galatians chapter 5, we come to this chapter that teaches us what it is means to live a Christian life. And you will know in your experience, the Christian life is not a stroll in the park. But the solution is not legalism. It's not hearing some spiritual gurus from different churches or Christian realms or to embrace our fleshly desires. So I'm going to summarize today's passage in three points. If you're someone who would like to take notes, this is going to help you. From verses 2 to 6, The first point is that the solution to this Christian life is not legalism, but faith. 
verses 7 to 12, the savior of Christians is not going to be spiritual guru, but the Lord. And finally, verses 13 to 26, the spirit living in Christian is not about us having our gratification, but love. Now, if this sounds like a mouthful, don't worry. We're going to look at them and walk through them together. We'll begin with the first passage that the solution to the Christian life is not legalism, but faith. Now, Paul, at this point, he began to exercise his apostolic authority in verse 2. This is how he begins. Look at it. He says, mark my words. Now, if someone says that, you pause and you listen. He says, you have to run from circumcision. Now, circumcision is actually the first step to obeying the whole law. Now, once they step in, they will be in bondage to keep the whole law. There will be step two, there will be step three, there will be step four, five, ten, hundred, two, hundred, and so on. Soon, the people who circumcise themselves will be surrounded by this bars of law that they cannot see the grace of God. Christ will no longer be of value to them because they have sought spiritual benefits and salvation elsewhere. No, they're in danger of exchanging what is priceless for something that is helpless. I wonder if you have done that before. You did a trade and you totally regret it. So they are in danger of trading what is priceless for something that is helpless. They're tempted to lock arms with circumcision, says Paul, and to let go of Christ. Now, we do not know what the visiting spiritual gurus preach to the Galatians, but we actually hear of this in another part of the Bible, in Acts, where the Jews from Judea, they went to Antioch, and this is what they declared to Gentile Christians, which you and I are, and they said this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, verse 2 to 4, if you have your Bible open, says, to be circumcised is to take on the whole law to turn from Christ and his works. Perhaps the words of John Bunyan is helpful here. He says this, One lick and you will sink the whole ship. Think of Titanic. One sin, one sin, and it will destroy a sinner. And that is what they are getting into. In fact, Paul puts it bluntly to the Galatians. He says this, either you put your faith in Christ for your righteousness, you let go of legalism and works, verse 6, or you let go of Christ and depends on your own work in keeping the law, starting with that circumcision, verse 2. You can't have both Christ and circumcision and the law. Now, circumcision is something that is not very common in our culture, and you probably say, hey, Andrew, it doesn't concern me very much. But it is the first step to this whole world we call legalism. Perhaps there are other forms of legalism where we, you and I, we may be tempted to embrace, to secure our righteousness, to create that different levels of Christians or different classes of Christians. Perhaps we may even think a Christian will be more right with God if you attend youth more, you attend church more, perhaps you give some money. By the amount of communion, you drink in your lifetime, you start drinking, you will have a whole bucket more in your belly than others. Now, there was this 18th century Puritan preacher by the name Jonathan 
Edwards. He left a deep impact to the Christian history by his writings. But during his lifetime, Jonathan Edwards faces many oppositions. In fact, this great preacher, he was fired from his own church after being the pastor for 23 years. Now, there are a lot of reasons why they want to fire him, but the center of this controversy, this issue, is Edwards' view of church discipline, and especially on the topic of who should take Holy Communion. I would argue that the Holy Communion should be taken only by professing Christians and not those who refuse to profess the Christian faith. Because for Edwards, there shouldn't be a sense of false security just because you are taking Holy Communion if there is no faith in Christ. So simply put, he says, if you have not confessed your faith, then the Communion is of no good to you. Slightly prior to that, in August 1749, Edwards actually published a book. It's a really, really long sentence. In summary, the book's title is A Humble Inquiry. And in this book, Edward had a conversation with parents. He said, parents, why are you so concerned that your children have the signs and symbols, that they are baptized or they have the Holy Communion, and yet you are so evidently not concerned with the realities that symbolizes the Communion and baptism. You are not concerned with their spiritual life. You just want them to have baptism and Communion and have those things. Now, Edward wrote, and I quote, it's a very long uh, sentence. I'm going to read it to you. I put it on screen and I try to explain a little bit. This is what he says. This is uh, 18th century uh, writings. He says this, What is the name good for without the thing? Can parents bear to have their children go about the world in the most odious and dangerous state of soul? In reality, they are the children of the devil, condemned to eternal burnings. And at the same time, the parents, they can't bear to have them disgraced by going without the honor of being baptized. No, a high honor and privilege this is. Yet how can parents be content with the sign exclusive of the thing signified? Why should they covet the external honor of their children while they are so careless about the spiritual blessings? If you see the, the picture, he's saying, parents, why are you so concerned with all this baptism and and communion, but you care less about the heart, whether they truly believe in God. Now, you can imagine why the people are so angry with him and want him to be fired. But he does bring out a very crucial point that it is not religious symbols and works that will save you or me, but a true relationship with Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said in verse 6, look at verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, we shouldn't be confused that Paul is saying that law or circumcision are evil because he already said early on it's not. What he's saying is that circumcision adds nothing on the day we stand before God. No, it really doesn't matter if you and I, whether we are Presbyterian, we are Anglican, whether we are Baptists, whether we are Methodist, whether we are baptized by sprinkling, we have this whole bucket on us, or we dump you into the sea. It really doesn't matter. 
if we do not put our trust in Christ? What counts is our faith in Christ. All other things that we do is an expression of the faith we have. Let's not mix that up. No, as the author Todd Wilson wrote in his book in Galatians, I'm going to give you another long quote. I promise you there won't be many of this, but this is what he says, and I think it is actually helpful. You see the blue color words. He says this, Whenever we are tempted to turn something good into something ultimate, we should ask ourselves the question, what good will this do at the final judgment? We must apply the faith working true love test to everything we believe and everything we do. This will help us to stand firm in freedom and avoid submitting to a yoke of spiritual slavery or legalism. So whether you're in church as you live a Christian life, it's good to ask, what good? is this at the final day of judgment. And we realize a lot of things don't matter that much. But what is priceless, we must never let go. So 6b says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So the first point, the solution to the Christian life is not legalism, is not works, but faith in Christ. Now Paul goes on from 7 to 12, he says, the Savior is not spiritual gurus, but the Lord. Now, this is what happened. When Paul first left Galatia, he was full of joy because the Christians in the Galatian church are walking a good path. They are running a good race. They've gotten a good start when Paul left. But along the way, they were tripped over and they've fallen off track. Now, apparently, some spiritual gurus had cut in on them. They are very persuasive and offer those missing recipes to their hard Christian life. I wonder if you have the experience when you talk to other friends, perhaps they're Christian, and say, hey, you know, this Sunday I just heard this blessing and that blessing from my, from my preacher, my guru, right? And you wonder, have I missed out things? Because my church doesn't speak as much of all these special things. Well, Paul says... This is a scam. Look at verse 8. They say their, pers- their persuasion comes not from God. Verse 10, they were throwing the Christians into confusion by teaching circumcisions. Perhaps that, this is what they were saying. They were saying, how can you be saved and have power without circumcision? Perhaps some of you may wonder because your friends may tell you, hey, you're a Christian, but you are missing out some ingredients. How can you have that power if you do not know how to turn the key to some of the secrets in the spiritual realm? Well, to these false teachers, Paul calls them the agitators of the gospel. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 11. Look at verse, verse 11. It says this, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, why does preaching circumcision abolish the offense of the cross? What is so offensive about the cross? Here's that million dollar question. What's so offensive about the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, the greatest offense is this. Listen to this. The greatest offense of the cross of Jesus is that the cross declares this. You and I, you're not good enough. 
You and I, we can do nothing to save ourselves. It is offensive to the human pride because the cross declares, you and I, we are all sinners who are destined for hell because we have rebelled against God. We cannot save ourselves from our works and only the cross of Jesus can deal with the impossible offense we have. It is a great offense to the pride of humans, of you and perhaps me. Now by preaching, circumcision or law or other things, you know what the spiritual gurus are saying? The spiritual gurus are saying, actually, you're not too bad. You're not too bad. You can do good stuff. Jesus on the cross fills up the gap that you missed out. And you know what will happen as you listen on to the spiritual gurus? They say, actually, I'm slightly better than you because my gap is smaller than yours. And before you know it, we have different classes of Christians. Now Paul declares in the most offensive way, let these agitators not just preach circumcision. If they're going to preach that, they might as well preach and castrate themselves. Sounds pretty vulgar, isn't it? But what he meant is this. If you start having the law and circumcision, you start having the spiritual leaders get the business class, the gurus get the first class, you'll all be flying a plane that does not reach heaven. You'll be crashing straight to hell. Now, Paul is not trying to be vulgar here, but actually, he's making the point that these spiritual gurus, when they preach circumcisions and law, they have disqualified themselves as God's people. Now, David Jackman helpfully points out in his sermon that emasculation in the Old Testament law actually disqualifies a person from being in the Jewish community. This is actually taken from Deuteronomy 23. This is why it says in Deuteronomy 23, no one who has been emasculated may enter the assembly of God. So Paul is not trying to be vulgar. He's using Old Testament to explain that these people have disqualified themselves from the community and the people of God. To put it another way, Paul is saying, verse 10, be that these agitators, they will pay for their crime. They are what Jesus called in Matthew 23, the whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and every kind of impurity. Paul turns to the Galatians and all who listens. He says that you who have been running a good race, Take no other views of salvation and justification by the cross of Jesus. So Paul put his confidence that those in the Lord will take no other view. And I hope it's the same for you and I when it comes to salvation. As for these spiritual gurus and the false doctrines, Paul quotes a popular proverb. He says, a little ease works through the whole batch of dough, verse 9. Now, <laughs> bread making is quite popular in our church. And one of the brothers actually told me that the ease in his fridge eventually ended up in his bedroom so that it can be taken care of. You know, a bit of COVID virus ignored and enclosed in this very welcoming environment will soon create horror. Now, having used the race analogy, Paul wants his listeners to reject this, to cast out this ease, these false doctrines, and to finish the race well. Can you imagine if you ever run a race, you don't really know where you're running and where you're ending? Anybody has run that kind of race before? I don't think you really want to do that because you 
really don't know where you're heading. And it's the same for Paul. He, he wants to make sure that his own race in the Christian life will not be in vain. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, when he speaks about his own race, he says this, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. No, Paul, he's careful with himself that after he has preached the gospel, he does not forget the gospel himself because Paul is not going to end up in heaven because he's a great apostle, because of his great works. He's going to be in heaven by the sheer grace of God, by the sheer cross of Christ. He says, as I preach the cross, I must be careful that I hold on to it. So the same he says to the Galatians and to us, that we must be careful on this. Now, one of the most amazing verses or chapter in the whole Bible when it comes to running the Christian race in faith is found in Hebrews 12. I want to read just two verses to you and see the beauty of these verses and how it encourages us. It says this, I'll just start from the middle of verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now the key to the Christian race is not picking up new spiritual insurance. Now when I was in university, one of my lecturers says, you know what's religion? Religion are basically spiritual insurance. The more the, the, more the better. Just buy more insurance and cover. But Paul says, don't pick up any spiritual insurance if you're a Christian. Accept the cross to fix our eyes on Jesus. There are no other gates to heaven that we can open with circumcision or law or works or by spiritual gurus. Only the gate that Jesus has and Jesus alone. Paul says, verse 10a, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. So let this be so for us as well, as we remember that salvation for Christians is not from spiritual gurus, but it's always from the Lord Jesus. Now, finally, Paul comes to what living the Christian life really means. Now, our Christian life is a constant battle, and we are to walk by the Spirit. And so the third point is this, that the Spirit is not about gratification, but love. Now, here's the big question after we have gone through the earlier sections. Is this, the big question is this, how can struggling Christians stand if you remove law and circumcision from them? The crutches that they hold on to, if you remove it, how will a struggling weak Christian stand? Or if you ask another question, how can we stop struggling as Christians? There will be a big question that the spiritual gurus ask if you ignore them. Well, according to Paul, listen to this. Christians, we struggle not because we lack some spiritual things. Christians struggle not because we lack any spiritual things. Christians struggle because we now have the Spirit of God. Catch that. Christians don't struggle because we lack spiritual things. 
Christians struggle because we now have the Spirit of God. Just imagine with me a picture which is alive, a fish swimming upstream, hard at work, or a fish floating down the river. No effort at all. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17 to 18. Look at verse 17 18. I read it to us. It says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Do you see that? When we become Christians, we become spiritually alive. The sins that didn't bother us in the past become a sore thumb and it bothers and grieves us. The gospel of Jesus that we didn't really care very much becomes the very air that we breathe and that we live on. No, there's this rising battle within us when we become Christian because the desire of the flesh that used to enjoy the playing field of your life now faces the opposition of the Spirit of God. And the true battle happens. And so it turns out that struggling is really part of living as a Christian. Now Paul is saying, hey Christians, listen to this. We are now finally free. We are free to be able to serve one another humbly in love. You know why? Because we no longer need to work for salvation. We, need, we no longer need to earn God's favor or His love because God has already saved us. We are already loved. But yet, it is also at the same time, in the same um, breath in verse 13, Paul actually also says this, but you be careful. Be careful, don't get tempted to misuse this freedom to feed our sinful desires. Now, do you see this battle happening? That on one hand, we have this freedom to do, to love freely because we don't need to earn anything. But on the other hand, the, the, the flesh or the sinful desire says, hey, feed me. The irony is that if we do not use our freedom to ex- embrace the life that God's Spirit calls us to live, we will be tempted to use this freedom to embrace that old self that's calling out for attention. The flesh here is not referring to our physical body, but our old sinful nature. And the flesh wants to lure us back to the worldly desires that it used to be able to motivate us. The desires of the flesh are obvious. Verse 19, Paul says, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, now, these are all the sexual sins. Then there are the sins within the spiritual realm, idolatry and witchcraft. This especially so. In fact, this week I was having a conversation with someone. Um, their family had, in the past, had other religions. And this thing comes back to disturb them. And of course, there are other things that the flesh desires. They're the relational sins we are familiar with, the hatred, the discord, jealousy, fits of rage, and those anger, self, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. You know, the flesh will say, hey, you know what, Andrew, you have the right to be a bit angry. Hey, you have the right to be a bit envious. Right? You, you have a bit of right to, to, to have ambition for yourself. Right? You're so smart. God you so smart, you, you should have some of your own ambition without God bothering you. Just a little bit. I'm not asking you to go to the extent of ignoring God. Just a little bit. Just feed me a little bit. 
know, you have been starving me since you become a Christian, feed me a little bit. And finally, of course, then it goes on to the excesses that will end up, the drunkenness, the orgies, and the like. No, without the Spirit, our path is only this way. Our path is only either the law or embracing the flesh. That's the only way we have. But life comes when the Spirit comes to us and we have life in the Spirit and the battle begins and now the alternative is there and it will be victory in the Spirit. We saw back in verse 5, look at verse 5, it says, Through the Spirit, we eagerly await by, the, by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So victory is assured, but there is this ongoing sweat and blood that we still have to face on this side of life. So our real battle is really not with the law. Our real battle is with the flesh, our sinful nature. Now see how Paul repeatedly described this battle against our sinful nature. Look at verse 13. If you're fast enough, you can follow. Verse 13 says, Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Verse 16, it says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And verse 17 and 19, we have already read. No, there's this real battle against the flesh on this side of life. But the good news in today's chapter is that we don't fight this battle alone. God's Spirit dwelling in us stands opposed to the flesh. The Spirit that freed us from the power of sinful nature and from God's judgment. In fact, verse 24, it says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and his desire. The Spirit has already been victorious. The conflict between the Spirit and the flesh, yes, they are real. We feel it on this side of life. But the victor is clear. The Spirit of God ultimately wins. So now we want to ask this question as we move closer to the end is, how then should we live this Christian life in the meantime? Well, like the Galatians, this is what it says. We too must, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, that we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what does walking by the Spirit look like in practice? Well, this is the answer. Once you see the words, you can't miss it in chapter 5. Or the answer of walking by the Spirit must be love. See how many times love is being mentioned. Verse 6, what do you say? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Verse 13, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first of the Spirit's fruit in verse 22 is love. Now, why does the Spirit who lives in Christians focus so much on love? Well, the answer is this. Because God is love. So the fruit that comes forth is none other than the character of God. Listen to 1 John 4, 7. I put it on the screen. Listen to this. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
And then verse 9 expounded on how God's love is revealed when Jesus came, died so that you and I might live. Now, there's one thing that law cannot do. Law cannot make you love willingly. Think about it. If you ask a judge or a police, what does law do? They'll tell you, my job is not to make you love. My job is to keep you in step. But I can't make you love willingly. But what the law can't do, that is what God's Spirit does. When we rely on the Spirit to work in our hearts, we will grow to be like the one we have cried out in the earlier chapter, Abba, Father. You know, when we love our neighbors rather than fighting each other in church, it is done by the Spirit of God. It is a declaration that we no longer need to prove ourselves that we are better than each other. We no longer need to prove and earn our way to God because it's all done deal. No, it is a declaration we're all sinners, but we are saved, we are accepted, we are loved by God. I wonder if you can think of times where loving instead of hating actually reveals that you are a Christian, that you are that fish swimming upstream rather than just floating along with your emotions and your human rights. Now, the path of Legalism, spiritual gurus, they eventually lead to division. They eventually lead to superiority. And they eventually lead to self-gratification. If you just think hard enough, this is the path eventually goes. But the path of faith in Christ brings us to walk by His Spirit and help us to express the Spirit's fruit beginning with love, in that verse, look at it. The other qualities, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you look at this list of the fruit, they are all relational qualities. Relational qualities between us and God with each other and even the right way to love ourselves as God's image bearers. So Paul's call is to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit verse 25. So the third and final point of Galatians 5 is that the spirit living Christian is not about gratification but love. So dear friends, as we close, this is actually great news. Great news for us who are feeling tired that we are not good enough. That we are tempted to find some secret recipes. Because while we are in our church, we hear some other churches saying some secret ways and formulas to live that victorious Christian life without struggle. Now, it is good news for us who are burdened by works, by imperfection, by legalism. And it's time to turn back to Christ and the cross. Now, Galatians is not written to non-Christians, to Christians, to people like us, and it says it's time to turn back to God, to Christ, to the cross. Now, all the sweet words of Jesus to come to us in Matthew 11, what did he say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Those who are burdened um, by the weight of imperfection, by the weight of needing to be better, Jesus, come to me. I've done for you. The Spirit of God is sufficient to lead us even as we experience the conflict within. 
Now, let me close with this. I had a chat with someone in church, a sister in Christ this week, and she reminded me how often the Spirit empowers us to stand firm and give us grace to persevere at a time where we desperately need it. In fact, sometimes God uses the Bible verses we memorize in Sunday school or youth, or even the songs that we have sang that are Bible-based, that they come on the desperate times when we are lying in bed, weary and burdened. It's not the Lord that's going to lift you up. It's going to be God's word that will strengthen us. The songs that goes, you know, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. When, when we're filled and we find that we don't deserve God, the song comes. Or when you are perspiring, trying to fight sin, or the song that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Or profess the beautiful hope right here in Galatians 5, verse 5, he says, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. What peace we can have and be reminded we are no longer alienated from Christ, that we are no longer alienated from God. You know, those moments when you're struggling or perhaps you're with someone you love, we hear this all the time. Someone you love are struggling and breathing their last. The last thing you want is to go there and tell them how much they have done right, how much they have done wrong. It's not going to help them at all. But if you preach the gospel of the cross, that whatever has happened, when you believe in Christ, Christ is enough for you and he'll be waiting for you. That is what Christ has done for us and that's what the Spirit does and that is more than sufficient for us. So as we close this time, May the Lord help us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus and to keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you today as we look at Galatians. We have been looking at this book, reminding us that gospel has no plus. It is Christ and the cross alone that we are safe. Help us to cling on to Christ. Help us to hold on to the cross so that we may never be in a place where there are different classes of Christians to think that we are better and so be prideful or we are worse and so we feel inferior and hopeless. But Father, help us to cling on to Christ. Help us to embrace what the Spirit has called us to. Not another legalism, but to live out character of yours. You whom we call Abba Father. So please be with us, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and your love, the Spirit who fellowship with us, strengthen us that we walk a life that is in Christ, confident of his work. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.